From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, Russian withdrawal from a grain deal with Ukraine could have dire consequences. Can the U.N. or U.S. help broker a new agreement to deliver food? Also, Ron Elling on the week in politics. A doctor's advice on precautions to take in the searing heat. And Utah Governor Spencer Cox on his program for governors called Disagree Better. We're trying to set the example of, again, how you can disagree with your, your MAGA uncle or your woke niece. But does anyone really want to disagree better? Ha! A new edition, International Artistic Swimming, male competitors, and a remembrance for the artistry of Tony Bennett. First, our newscast. It's Saturday, July 22nd, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Alabama lawmakers have designed a new congressional map, as required by U.S. Supreme Court decision last month. But critics say the map is out of step with the judicial order. Andrew Yeager of WBHM in Birmingham reports. The high court found Alabama's current map dilutes the power of black voters. Their order said there should be a second majority black district or something quite close to it. The new map maintains one majority black district. The approved map does increase black representation in a second district, but to just 40 percent. Democrats say the Republican-backed plan means black voters still won't have sway. Republicans say they drew the map to keep districts compact. The map must go back before a federal court. That's scheduled for next month. The outcome could affect redistricting cases in Georgia, Louisiana, and Texas. For NPR News, I'm Andrew Yeager in Birmingham, Alabama. The White House is launching a new Office of Pandemic Preparedness and Response. As NPR's Ping Wong reports, it aims to help the country respond better to health threats in the future. In recent public health emergencies, COVID and MPOX specifically, the White House led briefings and brought government agencies together to coordinate their response. This approach is now being formalized in the new Office of Pandemic Preparedness and Response Policy, which lives in the Executive Office of the President. The office will be led by Major General Paul Friedrichs, a physician who's been serving on the President's National Security Council as an expert on global health security and biodefense. According to the announcement, the office will coordinate the administration's response to public health threats that could cause serious disruptions, such as polio, influenza, and RSV. Ping Huang, NPR News. The Food and Drug Administration is saying it does not expect that this week's tornado damage to a Pfizer pharmaceutical building in North Carolina will cause major drug supply shortages. President Biden is set to tap the first woman to lead the U.S. Navy. Admiral Lisa Franchetti will join a long list of military appointees stalled in the Senate. NPR's Windsor Johnston has more. Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville has been blocking hundreds of military appointments in protest of a Pentagon policy that reimburses service members who travel out of state to get an abortion. As a result, hundreds of promotions are hanging in the balance. In announcing the nomination, President Biden said Admiral Lisa Franchetti has demonstrated extensive expertise in both the operational and policy arenas. If confirmed, Frank Hetty will become the first female member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. NPR's Windsor Johnston, Pennsylvania authorities say the body of a young girl has been recovered in the Delaware River. She is believed to be the two-year-old who was one of two children swept away from their family's vehicle by a flash flood last week in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. A person has died after being struck by an Amtrak train in Sharon this week. The person's identity has not yet been released. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports this is the seventh train fatality in Massachusetts this year, according to the most recent federal data and the first involving an Amtrak train. Amtrak says in a statement the pedestrian was hit Wednesday afternoon by a train traveling from Boston to Washington, D.C. The Sharon Police Department says on social media that it responded to 911 calls about a pedestrian struck at Sharon Station. The station is operated by the MBTA and provides commuter rail service. Amtrak says it is working with local authorities and state police to investigate the incident. The Norfolk District Attorney's Office says it does not suspect any foul play. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. A 17-year-old girl died on Cape Cod after a boat she was in crashed into a jetty. The teen's body was recovered by the U.S. Coast Guard at around 11.30 last night. Initial reports indicate other passengers may have been injured in that crash. The Boston NAACP is holding a day of action and service across neighborhoods in the city today. Tanisha Sullivan is the group's president. She says they have about 22 community projects lined up. They did have a big turnout for this event during COVID, so she expects a big turnout today. If we had 500 people during COVID, we are well on our way to a successful date with hundreds more people out in our neighborhood. Sullivan says to sign up as a volunteer and get assigned to a project, visit their website, naacpboston.org. And today's day of action and service is the kickoff for the 114th NAACP convention that gets underway in Boston on Wednesday. The Red Sox-Mets game was suspended in the fourth inning at Fenway last night because of rain. It'll pick up at 2.10 today. And our forecast sunshine today with temperatures in the mid-80s at 67 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. A week after ending a deal that allowed the export of millions of tons of grain from Ukraine, Russia has been bombing Ukrainian ports with missiles and drones. On Wednesday, 60,000 tons of grain were destroyed in an attack just south of the port city of Odessa. That would have been enough to feed 270,000 people for a year. The United Nations says the deal's impact on global food markets cannot be overstated. This potentially threatens hunger and worse for millions of people. That is Martin Griffiths, the UN's top humanitarian official, speaking at the UN Security Council on Friday. So the humanitarian catastrophe that continues to unfold in Ukraine continues to reverberate around the world, and it must end. NPR's diplomatic correspondent Michelle Kellerman joins us. Michelle, thanks so much for being with us. Hi there, Scott. Can the UN do anything to try and revive this deal to keep grain flowing? Well, I mean, they're certainly encouraging Russia to return to the deal, which is known as the Black Sea Grain Initiative. But so far, Russia shows no sign that it's going to back down. 
You know, it complains that the U.N. and Turkey, which also helped negotiate this deal, didn't do enough to make sure that Russia can export its goods. The Russians complain about U.S. and Western sanctions, not on food, actually, but on banks. They say that it's making it more difficult for them to finance this trade and to get insurance. And they say they want that resolved first. What's the U.S. response? Yeah, I mean, the U.S. says Russia is lying about this. Um, here's what Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield told the U.N. Security Council. They would have you believe that sanctions have blocked their exports. That couldn't be further from the truth. They were exporting more grains than ever before and at higher prices. Russia is simply using the Black Sea as blackmail. It's playing political games. It's holding humanity hostage. Thomas Greenfield also says the U.S. believes that Russia has laid sea mines near Ukrainian ports and might be planning what she's calling a false flag to justify attacks on Ukrainian shipments. And, you know, Scott, that's been one of the Biden administration's strategies throughout this war. They declassify information to show the world what Russia might do. The hope is that that will deter Russia from taking such actions or at least convince other countries to use their influence with Russia to back down. Well, how might that work? Is there anything the U.N. or the U.S can do to protect Ukrainian food shipments right now? Right now, they're just trying to get this deal back on track. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the U.S. is talking to allies about other possible routes for Ukrainian agricultural goods. But that's also not easy, as he pointed out at the Aspen Security Conference. I think it's very, very difficult because for the shippers, for the insurers, given the threats, more than the threats, the action that Russia's taken, over the last few days, uh, it would be very hard to operate in that environment. That's why we are looking for alternatives. We are looking for options. I just don't think we can make up the volume. Some analysts are even suggesting that NATO start escorting Ukrainian ships. But Blinken was asked about that. He didn't directly respond to it, but he also didn't give any indication that that's really being considered. NPR's Michelle Kellerman, thanks so much. Thank you. Turn our attention now to the U.S. Navy, because that's where we begin with NPR senior Washington editor and correspondent Ron Elvin. Ron, thanks for being with us. Good to be aboard, Scott. (laughs) I just got that. President Biden wants uh, Admiral Lisa Franchetti, the current vice chief of naval operations, to be the next chief. Uh, This may not sound like a House of Cards episode, but it does set up some drama, doesn't it? Indeed, it does. Now, this would normally be routine business. The Senate confirms hundreds of military promotions a year, and they do them in batches. But right now, one senator, first-term Republican Tommy Tuberville of Alabama, has blocked all the Pentagon's confirmations since February. We're approaching 300 of them now. That includes this historic appointment of Admiral Franchetti, uh, the first woman to be named to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who are, of course, the top uniformed officers in our military. Tuberville is staging this blockade because he wants the Pentagon to stop granting paid leave and travel expenses for women in the military who must go out of the state they're based in for an abortion because of state laws. Uh, He says that amounts to taxpayers paying for abortions. And and lawmakers uh, entertained a code of conduct for U.S. judges this week. Um, Sounds promising. Where's it going? It was approved by the Senate Judiciary Committee on a straight party line vote. And it may well get a vote on the Senate floor where it could prevail on a straight party line vote. Uh, This is in response, of course, to the reporting on lavish gifts to some of the justices and also misuse of court staff by some of the justices. Uh, There is not much hope for this legislation in the current House, 
But at least it shows the senators most responsible for overseeing the court are on the case. Firm out of movement in uh, former President Trump's various legal cases. Let me just <laughs> tee up some names. Eileen Cannon, Michael Cohen, Jack Smith. Yes, it seems the former president needs to be thinking about lawyers all the time. Uh, Aileen Cannon is the judge in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. Yesterday, she set a trial date for next May. Uh, Trump's lawyers had asked for it to be put off until after the 2024 election. Jack Smith is the special prosecutor in that case, and also in the case of the January 6th riot at the Capitol. He's expected to indict Trump in that case as well, and that could come any day now. And Michael Cohen is, of course, the former attorney who formerly worked for the former president. Uh, this week, he settled a million-dollar claim against the Trump Organization for unpaid legal fees. But he is still expected to testify in upcoming cases against Trump. And Trump is also suing Cohen for hundreds of millions of dollars for his statements and actions against Trump. Ah, and Ron, you and I uh, share a love for the art of the late Tony Bennett, who left us this week. I didn't have the personal connection to him you've had, Scott, but I did love his music and the way he reached out to other musicians, recording with them, promoting them. The night before this news came, my wife and I had been listening to an album just by coincidence that Tony made with the jazz pianist Bill Evans on yeah. Thursday night, and then we clicked over to a YouTube playlist of his material, listened for a long time, so we were able to leave our hearts with him once more while he was still with us. Uh, we'll speak of that now. NPR's Ron Elving, thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. I left my heart In San Francisco High on a hill It calls to me To be where little cable cars Climb halfway to the stars Tony Bennett told me he'd scarcely seen a cable car before he recorded what became his signature song. Sheet music been in the shirt drawer of Ralph Sharon, Tony's longtime accompanist, when they were in Hot Springs, Arkansas on a nightclub tour in 1961. Tony and Ralph noodled around at the piano after a show and tried a few bars of the song. What Tony put across so powerfully from the first notes was the magic pull of San Francisco, the golden city. The Hot Springs bartender told them, if you guys record that song, I'll buy the first copy. Well, millions of copies had been sold by the time Tony Bennett left us yesterday at the age of 96. I had the blessing to do a book with Tony Bennett as he turned 90 years old in 2016. I'd sit beside him in his New York art studio. He was also an accomplished painter and throw out names of people he'd known over eight decades in show business. It's the time he was 10 years old and sang at the opening of the Triborough Bridge. The gig he got because his uncle was a Queen's Ward healer who said... I got a nephew who sings. Duke Ellington, I'd say. Tony would tell me how the Duke would send him a dozen long-stem pink roses whenever he wanted Tony to record a song with him. Sinatra, I'd suggest, and Tony would recall how, when he once told Frank he was nervous before his show, he said, 
It's good. It means you care. Work hard for them, and they'll cheer for you. Belafonte, I'd say. Tony told me about the time Harry Belafonte and Martin Luther King asked him to do a show in 1965 for civil rights marchers along the Jefferson Davis Highway leading into Selma. Tony had to stand and sing on caskets borrowed from a local mortician because state troopers wouldn't let them use a theater or school for an integrated show. Ella Fitzgerald, Judy Garland, Nat King Cole, I'd go on. I heard Tony tell stories about lustrous names, shady producers, and celebs whose lives were heralded in gossip sheets, but he never put a villain into his memories. As he told me many times, everybody's got their own story. Tony often mentioned his mother, Anna Sirachi Benedetto, who sewed dresses. He'd sit beside her as a little boy in Queens and saw how, now and then, she'd frown and set a piece of cloth aside. I only work on quality dresses, she'd tell him. Well, that's how Tony Bennett felt about his art. He turned down many invitations to record songs producers thought could be hits because Tony insisted on quality material, too. Ellington, Cole Porter, Harold Arlen. Tony Bennett thought some of his most enduring work was on two albums he made with the jazz artist Bill Evans in the 1970s. The albums didn't do well at the time. They are considered timeless now. Sometimes the world just needs to catch up with what you're doing, said Tony. He leaves the world he loved and uplifted with a lifetime of music for us to catch up with. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy. Coming up in about 20 minutes, China's dominance in electric vehicle battery technology and how the rest of the world is trying to catch up. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, presenting August Wilson's Fences, starring Ella Joyce, July 22nd through August 27th. Tickets at Shakespeare.org. And Museum of Science. There's always something new. Visit the latest traveling exhibit, Mazes and Brain Games, and prepare to be amazed. Tickets at MOS.org. It's 67 degrees at 819, becoming sunny today with temperatures in the mid-80s, partly cloudy tonight and sunny tomorrow 80s. I'm Louise Schiavone with these headlines. New Florida education guidelines are poised to teach middle schoolers there that slaves had an opportunity to benefit from their slavery. Speaking in Jacksonville, Florida last night, Vice President Harris decried the new guidelines as false propaganda. Authorities in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, say they believe they have found the body of a two-year-old girl who was swept away in floodwaters last weekend. Her little brother remains missing. And Ukraine officials say Russian forces struck several regions across Ukraine overnight, killing at least eight civilians. At least six people died in the eastern Donetsk region. 
I'm Louise Giovoni, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed. Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting those working to improve the nation's immigration system and celebrating the contributions of immigrants to American life. More at Carnegie.org slash Great Immigrants. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. When Utah Governor Spencer Cox took the chairmanship at the National Governors Association this week, he announced his chair's initiative called Disagree Better. It's a program to encourage governors to try to set an example in how to disagree, but still seek bipartisan solutions and dare I say, be civil as they disagree. Governor Cox joins us now from Salt Lake City. Thanks so much for joining us, Governor. Thanks for having me, Scott. Governor, I have to ask, what do you say to people who say, I'm sorry, uh, there's just no way to civilly disagree or dignify the viewpoint of people who tried to violently overthrow democracy on January 6th or who don't accept somebody's orientation or identity? Yeah, well, I, I hear those types of arguments from both sides of the aisle very routinely. We've been working with uh, departments, uh, policy labs at Stanford University, at Dartmouth, at, at Duke, who do this type of work and actually look at the, the work of persuasion. If you really care about your side and about your argument, you're going to have to convince other people to, to see what you see and, and believe what you believe. And, and we don't do that by, by attacking people. We don't do that by tearing people down. In fact, it, it's it's the exact opposite. You know, I'm not saying you have to engage with someone who is abusive to you in any way. That's that's not the point of this. Um, the point of this is that most Americans, um, recent polling has shown that 75% of Americans are tired of the polarization, are tired of the, uh, the toxic disagreement that we're seeing across our country and are looking for something better. Can you cite a good example of what you're talking about? Well, uh, right, right here in the state of Utah, we have um, Equality Utah, which is the LGBTQ organization that represents uh, that group of people in our state. And I had a fascinating conversation. They actually bought a booth at the Republican State Convention and went in there, you know, again, very hostile territory for somebody in that group. And they were able to have civil conversations with people who disagreed very passionately with them and actually uh, changed people's minds, maybe not exactly about those specific issues, but they left with a better understanding of each other, treating each other with dignity and respect. And I was blown away by, by that example as I heard some of those stories. Um, I've certainly tried to model this behavior myself. I don't always get it right. I've, I've made mistakes, but we're, we're certainly trying. Uh, we've been working on some very difficult issues. And I always try to give people a seat at the table, including inviting them over to the governor's residence as we were working on some very difficult and polarizing um, legislation around transgender rights. Uh, 
rights um, and and also around uh, around conversion therapy and and so we invited transgender youth and their parents um, over to the to the governor's mansion with leadership from uh, the legislature and uh, and, and had a, again a dignified conversation and and although they weren't happy with how that legislation turned out um, the, the the discussion was very different and there were some changes made to the legislation because of those conversations so th there are examples out there but they're getting harder and harder to find you mentioned having um people who were transgender into the governor's mansion to talk about the uh, piece of legislation you ultimately signed which prohibits uh, a lot of what uh, they consider to be rational medical treatments I, I wonder did anybody say to you governor you're not recognizing my humanity with respect. Sure. Yeah. We hear that all the time. And I mean, obviously there are people who disrespect our, our humanity on both sides of the aisle, but, but that was not the case in this one. And, and uh, again, very methodically, um, I listened, uh, learned from them. We made some changes to the legislation, obviously not as many changes as, as they would have liked, but, but also did research and looked at the science, the real science behind what is being advocated for. And, and the truth is again, as, as I came to it, that the science is, is just not there to support those those claims. This was not a about attacking their humanity or their their, their dignity. I deeply care and, and and love those individuals. And when they're adults and their brains have have uh, have been able to, uh, to to form, they can make those decisions for themselves. We find ourselves far too often in this country with false choices, uh, false choices that that each side um, imposes upon us. And uh, and we can do that. You can you can love somebody and disagree with them. I, I know you can cite polls saying that people are getting tired of of all the disagreement, but haven't we also seen that sneering and invective just get a lot of clicks in a big audience? Yeah, and, and that's the problem. Um, the incentive structure that exists in our country right now, um, especially with media and, and social media, and, and I think both the traditional media and social media are to blame for this, um, we, uh, our human nature is that we we like a train wreck, um, real or proverbial, right? We always slow down to, to look. Our, our media and our social media rewards uh, extremism. And, uh, and, and so that's the incentive structure that we have set up right now. And again, that won't change until we as Americans decide to, to change it, to, to not click on those. And, and especially where we're participants now in the media landscape, to be very careful about what we're posting. And yeah, we may not get as many clicks and as many views and as many likes. Uh, although I, I do have to say that when, when everyone's zigging, um, a zag can get a little bit of attention. We're hoping to provide some, some counter-programming to what is likely to be the next most of divisive election of our lifetimes as we head into 2024 to give people something else to to look at and hopefully to give Americans a little bit of hope that there are at least some of us governors across the country who are trying to do things a little differently. Governor Spencer Cox of Utah, who is new chair of the National Governors Association. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Summer in Phoenix has been scalding and dangerous this year. Tuesday, the city was 110 degrees for a 19th consecutive day. And in such temperatures, simply touching everyday objects, a seatbelt buckle, a garden hose, can burn you. Dr. Kevin Foster directs the Arizona Burn Center in Phoenix at Valleywise Health Medical Center. Dr. Foster, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. What are you seeing there? 
Yeah, so this is a really tough summer for us. We had a nice, uh, pleasant, mild spring, and then June has and July have really come in with a vengeance, and we are seeing really a sharp uptick in uh, people who are falling down, going down onto hot pavement, hot asphalt, and getting really, really terrible burns as a result of that. Oh my gosh, how do you treat that? First of all, the burns tend to be really bad. Asphalt and concrete and um, sidewalks in Phoenix on a hot afternoon in direct sunlight oftentimes can reach 170 to 180 degrees. It only takes just a fraction of a second to get a pretty serious burn. And unfortunately, a lot of our people end up laying out there for minutes and sometimes even hours, and they end up with really horrible burns. And the way we treat that is we bring these people into the hospital. We have to support them. And almost all of them require surgery for skin grafting. Oh, my. You must be overworked. Well, you know, this is our busy time of year, and we anticipate that it's going to be a tough, busy time for us. But uh, this is abnormally busy right now. Even if people don't end up being burned, is there some hazard just to being outside under that kind of unrelenting sun? Just being out in the 110 to 115, uh, sometimes almost 120 degree weather in direct sunlight, it only takes a very short period of time to suffer heat prostration. And, you know, sometimes people end up with really bad central nervous uh, problems, liver problems, kidney problems. It can really be a tough situation when people suffer heat stroke. What advice might you have, doctor, for people, especially who might have to work outdoors? You know, obviously we recommend protective clothing, keep the sun, direct sunlight off your skin, a protective hat, stay hydrated, lots of water, and take frequent breaks. Get into the shade or preferably into uh, air conditioning. What we really worry about is people who aren't used to Arizona. Most Arizonans are, are pretty savvy about staying out of the heat and sunlight. The problem is uh, oftentimes when people come down here and they're just not used to it. And once you get out into this heat, it doesn't feel that bad. It's almost deceptive. And it's very easy to suffer, you know, the effects of heat and direct sunlight. I gather your clinic saw 85 patients for heat-related burns last summer. How does this summer compare so far? Yeah, so that number 85 is the number of people who we actually had to admit to the hospital. Most of them ended up in the ICU and all of them required surgery. We saw probably four or five times that many people who we were able to treat as outpatients whose burns were not as serious. And right now, we're, we probably hit close to 40 or 45 people who required admission to the hospital and, and surgery. So we are way ahead of the numbers compared to this time last year or any other year. And it's a little bit baffling to us. We don't really know why this is happening. I'm struck by something we said when we began our conversation, that even a seatbelt buckle, uh, people will park a car even if they think they've parked it in the shade. Obviously, the sun moves. The car can heat up. They should be careful about things like that. Yeah, cars are um, particularly dangerous because people don't think about it. But the interior of an automobile, particularly one with uh, a dark upholstery, can get to be 160 or 170 degrees. And just touching the steering wheel, or the worst thing to do is to touch something that's metal inside the car that's been exposed to direct sunlight, like a seatbelt buckle. As I don't have to tell you, Dr. Foster, the heat is with us. It shows no sign of letting up. Are you prepared? I don't know that we're completely prepared. You know, we expect to be busy in the summertime, but we did not expect to be this busy. We are full. 
our operating room schedule is full and uh, we've kind of hit critical mass right now and if this is the future for us we're going to have to make some alterations in how we do things dr kevin foster is director of the arizona burn center in phoenix thanks so much for being with us sir thank you it was an honor talking to you the billion-dollar trucking industry is changing, and <clears throat> pun alert here, with it, a shift in who's behind the wheel. As Jacob Martin of member station WKYU in Bowling Green, Kentucky reports, women who are, and people who are LGBTQ plus are buckling up as the industry works to solve a driver shortage. Adela Hansen is a long-haul trucker with over 50 years of experience. I'm 73 and, and uh, fast approaching 74. And yes, sir, I, I've been doing it since I was 18 in some form or fashion. She's raised a family while pulling tractor trailers across the country and has been around long enough to see important changes in the people who make up the long haul truck driving community. I am seeing it in the truck stop day after day after day. I'm seeing more ladies at the fuel island. I'm seeing more ladies dropping and hooking. And it's not just ladies. I'm seeing people of color, of uh, different nationalities, a lot of transgenders. Minorities account for 42% of truck drivers, according to industry data, but 90% are still men. And the industry is getting older. The average trucker is 46 years old amidst a growing shortage of roughly 80,000 drivers. So trucker recruitment is diversifying to get drivers behind the wheel. For Hansen, it doesn't matter what race, gender, or orientation you are, as long as you can get the job done. So you're seeing a lot of the gay community, and rightly so. They should be out there. If they can do the job, I don't care. They should have the opportunity. Bobby Coffey Loy agrees. He's the founder of the LGBTQ Plus Truckers Network based in Bowling Green, Kentucky. His organization started as a way to represent truckers who didn't identify as straight, but also to show there's money to be made in trucking. I was trying to bridge the gap between the regular LGBTQ community and trucking community, letting them realize that there is drivers out here, that it's a good option for a job and paying for surgeries and, and whatever you know your personal uh, goal is. The nonprofit now screens trucking companies to make sure they're LGBTQ friendly. They check whether companies support LGBTQ drivers or if their health insurance covers things like trans health care. Companies is where I see the biggest progress at this point. There's so many companies that have opened up. There are no official statistics on how many LGBTQ people are in trucking today, but Coffee Lloyd's group has several thousand members. He says queer and trans drivers have always been a part of life on the road. One of them is Ronnie Hazel Sherman. I was always interested in driving something from little. My uncles and my father in my early life uh, drove trucks, but I got that bug from them, I guess. She started as a long-haul driver in 1972 after serving in the Vietnam War. Sherman is a transgender driver and transitioned while she was trucking. I've had a really neat career. I've been all 48 states, been through most of Canada. So the places where I go, I'm familiar with. I don't have a problem, and they're, they're places that I've gone to for years. With more visibility and more acceptance from trucking companies now, Sherman says it should entice more LGBTQ individuals to look into a career in trucking. For NPR News, I'm Jacob Martin in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News.
Estes Park, Colorado, gateway to Rocky Mountain National Park. You could practically hear John Denver singing Rocky Mountain High in the wind. Or is it B.J. Lederman who does our theme music? It's actually a local musician called Cowboy Brad, who's been treating visitors to John Denver's music for nearly three decades. Here is an audio postcard compiled by Rocky Mountain Community Radio's Maeve Conran. Well, I stole upon a kind lad, I ain't much an old country boy like me can't have. Early to ride, early in the side, thank God I'm a country boy. Hi, my name is Brad Fitch, and I am known as Cowboy Brad. Days are all filled with an easy country charm, thank God I'm a country boy. I have been playing in the park in downtown Estes Park for 27 summers. It would have been 28 had not the COVID thing happened in 2020. Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains. Well, having been a kid in the 1970s, raised here in Estes Park, Colorado, John Denver was everywhere. You know, the, the governor appointed him as the poet laureate of Colorado. He was a big influence, and his music was on the radio everywhere. And naturally, I absorbed a lot of that. Now, when I started playing in the park, I noticed that people, tourists, visitors, wanted to hear John Denver music because they associate his songs with Colorado. And so I learned more and more of them. I've had visitors come to hear me sing uh, from all over the world. Last night it was Indonesia. I've had people from China, Japan, Australia. Uh, I've had people from African nations, from Eastern Europe, um, from all over the UK, Canada, South America, Mexico, and all over the United States. The most requested John Denver song is Rocky Mountain High. I think I play that every night of the summer. Yes, sir. What was the song you wanted to hear? Rock, oh, Rocky Mountain High. God, I have been meaning to learn that song. I'd be happy to put That's our state song here. You, know? you might say he found the key for every door. Well, I never get tired of playing Rocky Mountain High or those songs um, because it gives people so much joy to hear them. They associate that music with this place. And I enjoy being part of their experience and sort of providing the quintessential uh, soundtrack for their visit. When people come here to the Rocky Mountains, they associate it with John Denver. Playing his music for the visitors here from all over the world, I feel adds a nice element to their visit. Rocky Mountain High, where? Rocky Mountain High. He climbed Cathedral Mountains, saw silver clouds below, saw And that's Brad Fitch, is brought to us by Maeve Conran of Rocky Mountain and Community Radio. He got crazy once and tried to touch the sun. And he lost a friend but kept his memory. Now he walks in quiet solitude, the forest and the streets. This is NPR News. I'm Susan Levy. 
On Cape Cod, the body of a 17-year-old girl was discovered after the boat she was in crashed into a jetty. It was off Cold Storage Beach in Dennis. Reports indicate other passengers may have been injured in that crash. A person has died after being struck by an Amtrak train in Sharon this week. The person's identity has not been released. This is the seventh train fatality in Massachusetts this year, according to the most recent federal data. In the first involving an Amtrak train, authorities do not suspect foul play. Powerful storms dumped rain on the greater Boston area last night. The National Weather Service says communities between Worcester and Boston and points north got one to two inches of rain. Thunderstorms caused flooding in communities including Lowell, Bill Ricca, and Worcester. Lightning strikes also hit a tree in Wellesley and a home in Haverhill causing fires. And the storms also caused last night's Red Sox game to be suspended mid-game until 2:10 this afternoon. The game that was scheduled for 4:10 today has been moved to 7:10 tonight. 67 degrees at 8:40. We're funded by you our listeners and by View Boston. Now open. A new experience atop the Pru with three stories of 360-degree panoramic views, featuring food and drinks and opportunities to discover hidden gems of Boston and snap a selfie on the outdoor roof deck. Tickets at viewboston.com. We asked a best-selling thriller writer to recommend some books for summer. Maybe don't take them on your next flight, though. Those books really scared me witless, and I would read them on the beach, I would read them on the bus, but oh my goodness, me personally, I would not read these on a plane. Novelist Adrian McKinty on some thrilling summer reads, Sunday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness, With standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires, it's designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at Subaru.com slash wilderness. And from the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. When it comes to supply chains for the electric vehicle industry, China is far ahead for the number of batteries and EV cars that it produces. It's also cornered the market on the minerals, metal, cathodes, and anodes that go into batteries. Can the rest of the world catch up? NPR's Jackie Northam takes a look. The numbers speak for themselves when it comes to critical elements used in electric vehicle batteries and other forms of renewable energy storage. China mines more than two-thirds of the world's graphite, extracts 60% of the rare earths. It owns almost half of the cobalt mines and controls a quarter of the lithium. It is no overstatement to say that China is the 800-pound gorilla of global EV supply chains at present. That's Colin Hendricks at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He says China not only dominates much of the raw supplies, it's also the unquestioned world leader when it comes to processing the minerals. Last year, China refined, you know, 95% of manganese, roughly 70% of cobalt and graphite, two-thirds of lithium, and over 60% of nickel. These are all the key materials for lithium-ion batteries that currently dominate the market. 
China is not geologically blessed with every material you could want for the energy transition. But Andrew Miller, with Benchmark Mineral Intelligence, an analysis group, says China was just much faster than other countries at recognizing the shift to EV batteries and developed a long-term strategy. They started partnering with other countries. They started buying from Australia and locking in that supply chain. They started investing in projects in some in North America, actually, in projects some in um, Africa. So they were very strategic much before most of the world had really woken up to the what was coming on the horizon. The Biden administration is determined to catch up. Last year, Biden signed the landmark Inflation Reduction Act to help mitigate climate change. The $369 billion IRA is filled with tax breaks to boost America's electric vehicle industry. Companies and countries are aware of this opportunity. And I'll tell you, since the passage of the IRA, we've seen announcements and investments of almost $140 billion in EV and battery manufacturing. Jose Fernandez is Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy and the Environment. He told NPR the IRA needs to focus on supply chains if it's to reduce U.S. carbon emissions. If we are going to reach our clean energy goals, we are going to need to increase production in critical minerals by six to eight times what we have today. And that number is an exponential number when you get to lithium or graphite. We will need, for example, 42 times the amount of lithium that we use today and then 25 times the amount of graphite. Fernandez says the U.S. is going to have to diversify its sources of minerals. But that's tough to do. To get the IRA tax breaks, companies have to get minerals domestically or with countries that have free trade agreements with the U.S. The problem is some of the largest deposits of nickel and cobalt are in Indonesia and the Democratic Republic of Congo, respectively, countries where the U.S. doesn't have free trade agreements. China, on the other hand, has large stakes in both countries. Benchmark Minerals Miller says the U.S. has small amounts of those and other elements used in EVs. But permitting for mining and processing is cumbersome. You need to be able to put these facilities in place a lot quicker and get them up and running because the economics for a lot of these companies are incredibly challenging. And when you layer on years and years of a permitting process, it often makes it a very difficult business case. There are other efforts beyond the IRA to chip away at China's lead, such as developing batteries that don't use cobalt or nickel, or use sodium instead of lithium. The Peterson Institute's Hendrick says instead of fighting it, automakers like Ford and Tesla are turning to Chinese EV battery giant CATL to tap into its battery technology. It's the cheapest and fastest way to move forward and get to the forefront in using leading-edge battery technologies. Many analysts say the first step is borrowing technology before developing your own. Jackie Northam, NPR News. The pool of athletes who can compete in artistic swimming has gotten bigger. The Olympics and the World Aquatics Championships will now allow men to participate. The sport was previously known as synchronized swimming and was open only to women. Bill May is an artistic swimmer, and he joins us now from the World Aquatic Championships underway in Japan. Mr. May, thanks for being with us. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me here. What does this moment mean to you? So this is an incredible moment, not only for myself, but also for the sport in general. In 2015, they actually added men into 
the mixed duet, which is a man and woman. And now they've added men into the Olympic events. So you'll see a lot of men at the Olympics next year, which is going to add a whole new dynamic to the sport. What's it been like for you to be uh, uh, an artistic swimmer who happens to be male? <laughs> well, for me, I've been in the sport for 34 years and I've seen it all. I've seen people that say there shouldn't be any men in the sport. I've been ridiculed, but now to have men in the Olympics, it's only proving that what I said along, you know, it's a sport that anyone can do. It's a sport that I love. It's a sport that I've devoted my life to. It's given me so many paybacks to my life. My whole life is devoted around it. Well, forgive me. What was that ridicule like? I bet you remember a couple of instances. You know, so when you're a kid, you don't know anything. You do a sport because you love it, just like any other person. So when I was 12 years old, we received a call and, um, you know, they were calling me a pervert, saying I'm only doing this to swim with the girls. You know, and at 12 years old, you don't think about that. So to get that, it kind of only made me stronger because I thought, okay, you know, no one's going to tell me what I can do in the sport. I'm going to do a sport that I love. I'm going to do the sport because it's my choice to do it. My life will be devoted to proving them wrong and showing them that all men should be in this sport or any sport that they like to do. Yeah. Do you, you think men can bring a certain gift to this sport you love? Definitely. I think men, you know, they're not to be compared to females, but they're to complement them. They add a new strength, a new dynamic to the sport. Men can often be said that they are stronger, but that's only going to raise the level because there's females that are stronger than men too. So if a male is stronger, the female will rise to the occasion and become just as strong as them. And the males will have to be just as graceful or flexible. That's only going to create that strength combined because they are supposed to be unified. It's a sport where everyone needs to swim as one. You're competing at the World Aquatics Championships right now. I confess we don't cover that, uh, you know, the same way we do the Super Bowl or the Women's World Cup now going on uh, in the Pacific. How's it going for you? Uh, it's incredible. I competed at an aqua event and, you know, like it's a, um, a rule that you have to do seven lifts and lifts are these acrobatic movements that you would normally see gymnasts do. But the difference is with a gymnast, they can use the land and for the aqua routine, they're throwing athletes out of the water up to five meters in the air without pushing off the bottom. So it's a new event. So to be part of that and to have my sight set on the Paris Olympics, it's a goal that I never thought I would even be able to attain, but now to be at the World Championships and we just got a silver medal. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. That's wonderful. So um, forgive me, I say this as a man of a certain age, you would be not 18 if you got to the Olympics. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little bit older than 18. Come the Olympics, I'll be 45 years old. And some of the athletes on the team, one of our athletes who actually flies, which means She's the kind of the gymnast on top of all the lifts. Had her 17th birthday a few weeks ago. But, you know, these athletes push me. And I've been in the sport a long time. I would say I have a lot of experience. But these athletes have this youth and this hunger for greatness that pushes me to my limits. It makes me not feel my age because, you know, they are so strong. And we show respect for each other and this mutual respect that gives each other strength. Uh, Mr. May. The 17-year-old carries the torch into the Olympic Games. You carry it out. How does that sound? Exactly. You know, people say, okay, are you too old to be with this team? Absolutely not. You know, good. Tell me that because I'm going to prove you wrong and I'm going to break down every wall you put in front of me. Bill May, male artistic swimmer. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Is the future of Broadway immersive? 
The makers of the new musical Here Lies Love are so betting. It begins with the famous story, The Rise and the Fall of the Philippine Dictator Ferdinand Marcos and his wife Imelda Marcos. The show includes music by David Byrne and Fatboy Slim. And here is the immersion part. It turns New York's Broadway theater into a disco with members of the audience on the dance floor. Jeff London reports. A crowd gathered outside the theater after a recent preview performance of Here Lies Love. My name is Nigo Jesus. I thought it was very fun. I didn't expect to get a history lesson in a disco, but I did. I think this is a risky, adventurous, one-of-a-kind endeavor. Alex Timbers is the director. Its success or failure will probably have some impact on whether people try to do something like this again. Love was a hit off-Broadway 10 years ago at the Public Theater, and the immersive staging was essential to David Byrne's concept. He read that Imelda Marcos was a fan of disco, so he wrote a score with a thumping beat and melodic hooks. I imagined it as being a theatrical story, a musical story, being told in a discotheque and on little platforms around the periphery. Getting to walk through the audience and really connect with them every night, I feel like I'm getting to experience the show fresh. Ariel Jacobs plays Imelda from age 16 to 57 when a revolution forced the Marcuses to flee the country. I'm literally three feet from you, you know? I'm touching them, I'm shaking their hands. The theater has gotten an expensive makeover. 300 audience members stand on a dance floor while others sit directly above it or in the balcony. Video screens provide historical context. Choreographer Annie B. Parsons says the audience is invited to dance. Come on, let's give our people a break, you say! Give our people a break! Over here. Often when you go to the theater, you're just sitting on your seat, you know, and the thing passes by and you have some sort of vague experience. But in Here Lies Love, audience participation is not all fun and games. Director Alex Timber says as the show goes on, you become aware of the corrupt, repressive, murderous Marcos regime. The audience can get cast in the drama in a way. So you can be cheering on at the wedding of Ferdinand and Imelda, but then 40 minutes later, you can be at the funeral march for Aquino. That day something was born in those afternoon showers and the reason they're here, you need just ask the flowers. And you feel in a way complicit. You know, I cheered when they won the presidency, but now I realize the tyranny of dictatorship. David Byrne says the show is about the fragility of democracy. People were seduced by the Marcoses. They were glamorous, they were good looking, 
They did keep a lot of their campaign promises in the early days. So it seemed to a lot of people very promising. But then it all goes south. For most of the cast members, Imelda and Ferdinand Marcus's rise and fall happened long before they were born. But Ariel Jacobs says the legacy is something they all share. And it's so exciting to be in this cast of 100% Filipino people because all of us, I think, feel such a deep connection to the story and to each other. This song right here is going out to all my Filipinos going through the struggle. You may feel like nobody sees you, but a Aquino's got your back. Now listen up. Once upon a time, I was a little prince. I was a prince. Rodrigo Book Six was in the audience at a recent preview. That felt really Filipino, like a party vibe kind of thing. And this kind of sounds corny, but you kind of get tearful because you don't realize how much media you already consume that's not you. And then when you see a full show where it's like all Filipinos, it's kind of awesome, you know? For those unfamiliar with the history, there are displays in the lobby as well as a QR code in the playbill, which links to a historical timeline. And to the surprise of many audience members, they learn the current president of the Philippines is Bongbong Marcos, Imelda and Ferdinand's son. And Imelda, who famously left thousands of pairs of shoes in the palace when she fled in 1986, is living there again. Set designer David Koren says, At its best, theater is showing you something while entertaining you, something that is thought-provoking and meaningful. And, in the case of Here Lies Love, in a completely kinetic way, in the audience's bodies. So, is this the future of Broadway theater? Already, an immersive production of Guys and Dolls is being planned for later in the season. So theatergoers will walk through Times Square to enter an environment depicting Times Square. David Byrne well knows the boom and bust nature of the business. It's a huge gamble for us and for Broadway theater owners. But I've noticed that the demographic of the audience is different than the usual Broadway show. They're much more diverse and much younger than the usual Broadway show, and I thought, that's what Broadway needs. For NPR News, I'm Jeff London in New York. Immerse yourself in Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners, available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple, in stores or delivered from hintwater.com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR, where Weekend Edition continues. Listen for the Moth Radio Hour tonight at 6. Catch Wait, Wait today and again tomorrow morning at 10 and more. Find your new weekend soundtrack at WBUR.org slash schedule. 67 degrees at 859. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Cape Playhouse in Dennis Village. 
now playing Tony Award-winning musical Jersey Boys. Up next, the Gershwin musical An American in Paris. Tickets at capeplayhouse.com. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. On last week's Wait, Wait, Emmy Blotnick revealed herself to be a genius of marketing. I've always said that should be the slogan for cottage cheese. Yes. It looks expired when it isn't. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagel. The slogan for our show is it looks like NPR, but it isn't. See what we mean when you join us for this week's Wait, Wait from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. and this hour, is an isolated Vladimir Putin more vulnerable or more dangerous? Also, would auto workers are wane as their union decides on a presidential endorsement or not? The U.S. women's soccer team scores a first-round victory, but will their going get tougher? And Jason Aldean's song, Pulled from CMT, has rekindled a debate about the place of black artists in country music. Holly G, founder of the Black Opry, says... 1% black artists played on, on country radio over the past 20 years. So it's not a problem that we're imagining. It's not something that... It's not a feeling. It is a statistical fact. First, our newscast at Saturday, July 22nd, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. New Florida education guidelines are poised to teach middle schoolers in that state that slaves had an opportunity to benefit from their slavery, a notion decried by Vice President Kamala Harris at an event in Jacksonville, Florida. NPR's Dave Mistich has details. Speaking in a historically black neighborhood, Harris said extremist leaders were attempting to replace history with lies. This is unnecessary to debate whether Enslaved people benefited from slavery. Are you kidding me? Are we supposed to debate that? DeSantis campaigning in Utah argued it wasn't his call. But I mean, these were scholars who put that together. It was not anything that was um, that was done politically. The State Board of Education's policy change follows last year's Stop Woke Act, aimed at what DeSantis calls liberal indoctrination in public schools. Dave Mistich, NPR News. The Justice Department is preparing to file a lawsuit over the deployment of barriers to stop migrants in the middle of the Rio Grande. Texas is being warned its assortment of land and water barriers raise humanitarian and environmental concerns and violate federal regulations. David Martin Davies of Texas Public Radio reports. Texas Governor Greg Abbott installed the floating barrier to prevent migrants from swimming across the border river and entering Texas. He also ordered the placement of miles of razor concertina wire on the Texas side of the river. In a letter to Abbott, the Justice Department claims these actions, quote, violate federal law, raise humanitarian concerns, present serious risks to public safety and the environment, and may interfere with the federal government's ability to carry out its official duties. 
Abbott responded by tweeting that Texas has the sovereign authority to defend its border, adding, we'll see you in court, Mr. President. I'm David Martin Davies in San Antonio. A growing chorus of voices is calling on Russia to return to last year's agreement to allow the export of grain from Ukraine. At a meeting of the U.N. Security Council yesterday, China's deputy U.N. ambassador, Geng Shuang, noted that international food security was at risk, especially in developing countries. In addition, U.N. Undersecretary Rosemary DiCarlo warned of global disruptions. Any risk of conflict spillover as a result of a military incident in the Black Sea, whether intentional or by accident, must be avoided at all costs, as this could result in potentially catastrophic consequences to us all. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield accused Russia of using the Black Sea as blackmail. Russia's defense ministry is saying today a war correspondent for Russia's RIA news agency has been killed covering the war in Ukraine. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. Powerful storms dumped rain on the greater Boston area last night. The National Weather Service says communities between Worcester and Boston and points north got one to two inches of rain. Thunderstorms caused flooding in communities, including Lowell, Bill Rickett, and Worcester. Lightning strikes also hit a tree in Wellesley and a home in Haverhill, causing fires. The storms also caused the Red Sox game to be suspended mid-game until this afternoon. Bishop Fenwick High School in Peabody is banned from state tournaments in this upcoming sports season. The Massachusetts Interscholastic Athletic Association's Board of Directors announced their unanimous vote yesterday. The board says the parochial school violated a rule about student-athlete transfers between schools. WBUR has reached out to Bishop Fenwick for comment. First Lady Jill Biden will be on Nantucket today. She's speaking at a private political event this afternoon. She paid a visit to Provincetown yesterday for a fundraising event. A local friend of the late legendary singer Tony Bennett is remembering Bennett as the same warm person offstage as he was when he was performing. Bennett died yesterday at 96. He'd been diagnosed several years ago with Alzheimer's disease. Ron Della Chiesa became friends with Bennett through his work as host of Music America on WGBH. He says he refers to Bennett as the John Singer Sergeant of Singers, referencing the famous American portrait artist. Because through everything he sang, he painted a musical portrait. His voice was remarkable. He could hit those high notes. He sang with a lot of passion and brought out the poetry in the music like no other singer. Della Chiesa and his wife hosted Bennett's daughter Antonia in their home when she was studying at Berkeley College of Music. The Red Sox-Mets game was suspended in the fourth inning at Fenway last night because of rain. It'll pick up at 210 today. The game that was scheduled for 410 today has been moved to 710 tonight. And in the Women's World Cup in Auckland, the U.S. defeated Vietnam 3 to nothing. 68 degrees in Boston, becoming sunny today, mid-80s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and Jarl and Pamela Mohn, thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thanks for being with us. There are new education standards in Florida, and many parents, teachers, and lawmakers there are outraged 
about how those standards seem to address slavery and African-American history. The vice president of the United States is as well. Kamala Harris went to Jacksonville to deliver her objections in person. Member station WMFE's Daniel Pryor was there and joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. And please tell us about the vice president's speech. Sure. So Harris called the new standards gaslighting, especially, you know, thinking about the history and the horrors of slavery. That anyone could suggest that in the midst of these atrocities, that there was any benefit to being subjected to this level of dehumanization. And she also called the standards misleading, fake propaganda, and she likened them to people that minimize the history of the Holocaust or Japanese internment camps or how Native people have been treated by the U.S. government. Danielle, you were at the State Board of Education meeting this week where the new standards were approved. Tell us about that meeting, please. Yeah, so dozens of people spoke, teachers and students and parents and advocates, and they spoke for over an hour, mostly in opposition to those standards. But then, of course, the board went ahead and adopted the standards. Most people who spoke out against them say that they whitewash American history. And I want to read you the two standards that most people are taking issue with. The first is a middle school standard, and that requires students to learn about, quote, how slaves develop skills, which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. Unsurprisingly, that's the line everyone's talking about this week. But there's another standard, a high school standard, uh, where the older kids would have to be taught, you know, in instances like the Tulsa massacre, that that violence was perpetrated both, quote, against and by African Americans. And of course, we know that's not the case. During the Tulsa massacre, it was black residents who were killed in large numbers and their property destroyed. And, you know, the board just in general says that the, the standards are are comprehensive and they cover the good, the bad, and the ugly of African-American history, um, but they are, you know, they've been appointed by our governor and have a very specific agenda. And Governor DeSantis is running for president, and um, he refers to having an anti-woke agenda. Uh, what, what else does this uh, potentially mean for education in Florida? So we've had a slew of laws um, that have uh, started July 1st here in Florida. The big ones, uh, we've expanded the parental rights and education law, which people outside Florida probably know is don't say gay. And under that, teachers can now lose their certification if they talk to kids in pretty much any grade about gender identity or sexuality. They can lose their certification if they use a child's preferred pronouns or let a kid use a bathroom that aligns with their gender identity. And then for school media specialists, we have new laws that make it a lot easier to challenge books. So they're going to be facing a lot of book bans in the coming school year. Danielle, what, what could be ahead next in Florida for teachers, parents, and students? Sure. So right now it's summer break and the kids don't go back to school for a few weeks yet. But in August, we'll be watching to see what the impact of all of these different laws are. For now, it's interesting to see the impact on the teacher shortage here in Florida. Um, last January, halfway through the year, we had more than 5,000 open teaching positions halfway through the year still that hadn't been filled. And the end of last school year saw hundreds of teachers resign here in Central Florida over these laws. So it's going to be interesting to kind of watch not just the teacher shortage, but the impact of these laws. And there's school districts being sued right now by parents and authors over book bans. So a lot happening here in Florida in terms of education. Daniel Pryor, WMFE in Orlando, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you.
Donald Trump's legal problems are growing. The former president faces two new possible indictments in Washington, D.C. and Georgia. And of course, there are two other indictments in New York and Florida. What does this mean for his re-election bid? At the Iowa caucus less than six months away, Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters has been paying close attention to Republican voters there. I've had caucus goers, potential caucus goers say to me, you know, this is all just noise that we hear about with these indictments and, and really anything that happens with the former president. They love him and they, they want to support him. You can hear that story and all the news later today on All Things Considered. Tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. The war in Ukraine has isolated Russian President Vladimir Putin from the West, and that isolation may be growing. Putin will not travel to attend a summit next month for a key bloc of countries known as BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. It's because of an arrest warrant from the International Criminal Court for alleged war crimes in Ukraine. We're joined now by... Angela Stent of Georgetown University. She is the author of the book, Putin's World. Dr. Stent, thanks so much for being with us. I'm glad to be on your show. What are some of the implications of um, a more isolated Vladimir Putin? Well, if you think about the BRICS organization, it was founded in 2009, a Russia-China project. And for him not to be able to go uh, to a summit of an organization that he was so instrumental in creating as an alternative to Western-dominated regional and multilateral organizations, I would say, is a real sign of the isolation. And we will also have to be uh, watching now for the G20 summit uh, to take place in India uh, in September. India is not a signatory to the International Criminal Court's Rome statue, but we have the feeling that the Indian prime minister would probably also prefer not to have to deal with this. So I think it shows that Of course, Putin has been isolated from the West, but it's been clear since the war began that he hasn't been isolated, obviously, from China and a number of countries in the global South. But the fact that he cannot attend this summit now makes it clear that um, he's dealing with, uh, I think, greater isolation than he thought he would be a year ago. Mm -hmm. But it has to be asked, is a more isolated Vladimir Putin more, more vulnerable and or more dangerous? I mean, he's more vulnerable in as much as, you know, this arrest warrant is out for him and that will really limit uh, his travel. Is he more dangerous? We've seen some prevarications since the um, short 36-hour mutiny by the Wagner leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Putin, it took him most of a day to respond to this. I mean, he had a very angry response in the beginning and then he sort of disappeared. And it seems that there is certainly um, more unrest among the elite, that there's probably more political infighting. CIA Director William Burns uh, said at the Aspen Security Forum this week that they certainly see indications of that. So one senses that he's more vulnerable, although he's trying to give the impression that he's completely in charge still. Is he more dangerous when he is um, more vulnerable? I think that's what he wants everybody to think. If you go back to an autobiographical series of interviews in 2000 when he became president, um, there's this metaphor about him being cornered by a rat and then, you know, lashing out at, at the rat. So he wants people 
to be intimidated by the idea that he's more dangerous. And, you know, we've seen, obviously, um, Russia responding, for instance, to uh, the recent Ukrainian attacks on Crimea with uh, more attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure and things like that. Um, and so in that sense, he wants one to believe that, you know, the more military fury will be released. But we'll just have to wait and see. You uh, have observed President Putin for some time now. What are you looking for that might be next in his actions? What should we look for? We have to certainly look at what happens uh, going forward now in the conduct of this war. Uh, the Ukrainian counteroffensive is very difficult. It's proceeding slowly, but more slowly than it should have. Uh, the Russians have built very strong defenses there. I don't think we should expect any new Russian forward movement, but certainly their ability to defend themselves from the Ukrainians. Um, obviously, you have to keep listening to what he says about the possible use of tactical nuclear weapons. He's been more silent recently because particularly the Chinese, I think, have warned him explicitly that this is not a good idea, and obviously the US and other countries have too. And I think we have to look, although it's so difficult, to try and figure out what is happening inside the Kremlin, which is probably the most challenging aspect of this. I feel the need to ask you this very directly. Is Vladimir Putin in any danger of being turned out of power one way or another? Well, at the moment, it doesn't look like that. Uh, but Russia always surprises. He still seems to have prevailed after this mutiny. They're still negotiating with Wagner. And we, Mr. Prigozhin, the leader, is still alive. We don't know how long that will be. Uh, I think Putin is trying to give the impression that he's acting very deliberately in response to all of these challenges to him. But I think ultimately we may see more people disappear. When you say more people disappear, you his political opponents will be assassinated. Either assassinated or, or imprisoned. I mean, some of the generals have already uh, disappeared. And we don't know what will happen to Mr. Prigozhin. Uh, but if you watch state-run television, information is given out there that would be quite humiliating to him. So I'm, I'm watching that very carefully. What advice would you give for the West to deal with Vladimir Putin right now? Well, I think we have to continue what we're doing. We've remarkably held a coalition together with our European and our Asian allies. Um, I think we have to push back as much as we can. We have to continue supplying the Ukrainians with the weapons that they need and maybe with greater alacrity than we have done until now. And we have to make sure that the, that the Ukrainians have the wherewithal to rebuild that's really the most we can do because clearly the U.S. and the NATO countries are not going to get directly involved in this. Angela Stent is a director of the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies at Georgetown University. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. And you're listening to NPR News. And thanks for starting your weekend with us. I'm Susan Levy. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, how the U.S. and Russia differ on their approaches to the conflicts in Kosovo. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Circus Smirkus, New England's traveling youth circus. Coming to Waltham July 27th to 30th and Newbury August 4th and 5th. Tickets at Smirkus.org. 
From the beach or at the park, on a walk or at your desk, the WBUR app makes it so easy to tap and listen wherever the summer takes you. Listen live and catch up on anything that you might have missed. Download the WBUR app today. 69 degrees at 919, sunny today, mid-80s, partly cloudy tonight and sunshine tomorrow. I'm Luis Schiavone with these headlines. Authorities in Ukraine say Russian forces struck several regions across Ukraine overnight, killing at least eight civilians. At least six people died in the eastern Donetsk region. Russia's defense ministry is saying today that a war correspondent for Russia's RIA news agency has been killed and three other Russian journalists wounded by shelling near the front line in the Zaporizhia region. In Alaska's North Slope region, officials say there appear to be no survivors after a helicopter carrying a pilot and three state workers crashed in a shallow lake. Workers from the Division of Geological and Geophysical Survey were aboard. I'm Luis Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for chefs and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. President Biden declares that he's staunchly pro-union, but the United Auto Workers, one of this country's most powerful unions, has so far declined to give Joe Biden its presidential endorsement. Former President Donald Trump thinks he might have a chance to win it. NPR's Don Gagne reports the UAW's tough love approach to politics comes amid a new round of contract negotiations with other companies. UAW President Sean Fain, who took office earlier this year, signaled from the beginning and also now at the contract talks that he's willing to strike a militant tone on behalf of his members. Whether we strike or not, it's up to the corporations. You know, if they if they give our members their equal share and their fair share, we're going to be fine. But if they don't, we're going to have to do what we have to do. And that tone also extends to politics. Even though the nation's single largest labor organization, the AFL-CIO, has already endorsed President Biden for re-election, the UAW says it is holding off on any endorsement, for now at least. That's because the union is unhappy with how the administration is pushing with tax dollars for the manufacture and development of electric vehicles. Fain wants guarantees that new jobs created be good-paying union jobs. He insists he's not against a greener economy. Here he is outside a factory gate in suburban Detroit. If we're going to do things for these companies to help this transition, labor can't be left out of the equation. And if they're going to leave labor out of the equation, 
then it's going to be hard for us to endorse any candidate. Traditionally, UAW presidential endorsements go to Democrats, but the decision not to endorse just yet has prompted former President Donald Trump to make a pitch for himself. He did so in a three-minute long video release this week. And I hope United Auto Workers is listening to this because I think you better endorse Trump because I'm going to grow your business and they are destroying your business. They are absolutely destroying your business. Trump will certainly get some auto worker votes, but an actual endorsement seems almost impossible, especially since the UAW president has said repeatedly that another Trump presidency would be, quote, a disaster. UAW members are watching all of this closely. At the bargaining table, they want better pay and cost of living adjustments, and they want politicians they support to have their backs. David Sandoval says Biden is not perfect, but he's still got his vote. It's not going to be 10 out of 10. It's going to be 8 out of 10. And to me, that's still good. That makes him electable. That makes me say I'm still going to vote for him in 24. Meanwhile, at another factory where they build the Ford Bronco, UAW member Adam Cook says he's ready to strike for more pay if need be. He won't talk about who he's voting for, but likes that his union is leaning on Biden. I think it's pressure that was needed. Like, you're not just going to get our endorsement just because of your party lines. You're going to get our endorsement based on what you do in that office. Point blank. The whole UAW is changing. The UAW's top leadership was just in Washington. While there, UAW President Fain had a brief unscheduled meeting with President Biden. We still don't know exactly what they talked about, but Biden calls himself the most pro-union president in history. The UAW is telling him how to prove it. Don Gagne, NPR News, Detroit. So nice to say, and now it's time for sports. Team USA scores a shutout, but what's ahead? Lionel Messi makes his U.S. debut with a flourish, and the NFL's Washington football team, now called the Commanders, gets a new owner. Michelle Steele of ESPN joins us. Michelle, thanks so much for being with us. You bet, Scott. Team USA made its debut, uh, FIFA Women's World Cup last night, defeating Vietnam uh, 3-0. Look, it was a shutout, but the coach thinks maybe they uh, could have scored a few more goals. Yeah, you know, a lot of people were expecting almost a redux of that season opener in 2019, the World Cup opener in 2019, where the U.S. beat Thailand 13-0. It wasn't that, you know, 3-0 is a solid score by many estimates, but definitely short of what was expected. Considering the talent differential, considering the dynamic attack that's really characterized the U.S. in the past, now you got to hand it to USA Sophia Smith. She had two goals and an assist in this game. She made plays when it mattered. A win's a win. It was still a fun watch, Scott. Next match uh, is Wednesday night against the Netherlands. Uh, This this might be a little more complicated, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, the Netherlands were the runners-up from the last World Cup, right? And this Mm -hmm. U.S. team, they haven't got a ton of reps together. So you're right. They need to gel very quickly. Lionel Messi, the veteran. Mm. The current world champion 
or with the Argentine side, considered by many the best player of all time, made his first appearance for Inter-Miami last night against uh, Cruz Azul. Boy, he made an impression, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. You know what? There wait, is wait, a... hold on. Go! Yeah. <laughs> There's people doing, I love that, by the way. There's people, you know, doing Barbieheimer this weekend. You could have done... U.S. women's national team and Messi on a split screen last night. It was yeah. an absolute Hollywood start for the biggest soccer player in the world. You had LeBron James, Serena Williams, hold on for this, Kim Kardashian in the house, a host of others to see Messi. He came in as a sub. Remember, he hasn't played in a while. Yeah. Came in as a sub in the 54th minute. And with the score tied at one apiece, he scored in stoppage time on a free kick it just curled it into the top corner with that legendary left foot and enter miami the worst team in major league soccer has gotten a boost that fans can only dream of and that major league soccer can only dream of too the guy looks good in pink doesn't he i noticed that i think he wears it well yeah i think he wears it well uh, the Washington Commanders uh, finally sold this week a partnership led by Josh Harris, who also owns the Philadelphia 76ers and New Jersey Devils. Six billion dollars. This has been a franchise riddled not just with losing, but charges of sexual harassment and abusive mm. behavior under Daniel Snyder. Uh, what do you see ahead? You know, uh, I was monitoring some of the local reporting, some of the local coverage in, in D.C. on this, and I think the movie The Wizard of Oz best summed up the feeling scott and i quote ding dong the witch is dead Ooh. which old witch the wicked witch uh it really feels like one twitter user said washington dc is getting back something that they thought they lost in 1999 when snyder bought the team y you're right they were always mired in irrele irrelevance his off-the-field conduct, you know, he was squeezing old ladies for ticket money. He served expired yeah. peanuts and, at one and point. Squeezing and squeezing ladies, too, but let me... Yeah, uh, and literally that. Yeah, the more serious charges around harassment, an embarrassment to fans, an embarrassment to the region, and finally to the league. Happy days are here again. Michelle Steele, thanks so much. Sure. Try that in a small town. See how far you make it down. The video for Jason Aldean's new single, Try That in a Small Town, was pulled this week from country music television after critics attacked it as racist. The video intercut scenes from Black Lives Matter protests with Jason Aldean performing in front of an infamous Tennessee courthouse where a black man was lynched about 100 years ago and where a race riot occurred later. Jason Aldean denies the song has anything to do with race and says it's about taking care of neighbors, quote, regardless of differences in background or belief. Despite some country music fans who have Confederate flags on their bumpers, black musicians have always been a part of country music. We're joined now by Holly G., the founder of the Black Opry, an organization that promotes black country artists. And we just use her last initial because she uh, has gotten threats in the past. Holly G. joins us from Nashville. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. You've seen the Jason Aldean video? I did. It actually made me sick to my stomach. I, I had I read the lyrics first, um, which were bad enough. And when you pair it with that video and the images, it just it's very, very clear what he was talking about. What about the uh, 
the argument he makes that it's just a song about people in a small town who take care of each other. Yeah, I think that is almost the genius of sending out a dog whistle because it's obvious enough that everybody can see what you mean, but it's still vague enough to where you there's plausible deniability. Um, and I think that if we let these things go unaddressed, then it continues to allow the problems that we see in country music, which is that, you know, Black people are often pushed out of it, and they're pushed out of it with things like this. Talk to me a bit about that, if you can. They're, um, I, I mean, I'm Darius Rucker, Brittany Spencer, DeFord Bailey, Rhiannon Giddens. There have been lots of great Black stars in country music in recent years. There have been lots of great Black stars that are making country music. The country music industry is not embracing them and giving them the same opportunities and accolades that their white peers are getting. If you look at country music radio, that is the biggest indicator of success in the country music genre. And it's the last genre that has such a focus on radio. But, you know, charting nominations for awards, all of these things circle back to country radio. And Dr. Jada Watson did a study on country music radio, and I think it was 1% Black artists played on, on country radio over the past 20 years. So it's not a problem that we're imagining. It's not a feeling. It is a statistical fact that these artists are being shut out of the mainstream. Tell us about the work that you do at Black Opry. Yeah, we have actually identified over 200 Black country and Americana artists around the country, and we work to platform as many as we can. You know, everybody's been talking so much about division, hatred, and everything that we do is so much the opposite of that. We provide opportunities to create connection and community, and it's really just about giving these artists a voice in the industry. Mm-hmm. I, I love country music. It's heart. It's soul. It's the stories of real people. Do you think there's a special music that black country artists can bring to country music? Absolutely. It's not even just the music, but the perspective. You know, most country music lovers will tell you that they love the stories. As long as country music has existed in the mainstream, we've only had stories from very few perspectives. So if you're a true lover of the music and the stories, I don't understand the pushback of welcoming in people that don't look like you. that's, you know, the most important place that you can learn from is when you hear stories that don't sound like your own. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what, that's what the arts are all about. Yeah, exactly. What do you, uh, what do you make of the fact that the Jason Aldean song is um, very popular at the moment? I think it's number one. I mean, we just watched this happen when Morgan Wallen said the N-word and shot to the top of the charts as well. That, that's the biggest obstacle we face um, when trying to diversify country music is that their fans are so galvanized behind white supremacy that when they have an opportunity, they make sure that the artist doesn't suffer for speaking out in favor of that. And so our goal is to show that there are other people out there that love this music, people like myself who, um, you know, things like that frighten us. I had somebody tweet me yesterday, um, don't worry, we'll take care of you in the streets. If you look, Shannon Watts, who is is the founder of Moms Demand Action, has gotten multiple death threats over the past week. These people are not safe for us to be around. And that's, you know, the core of why I started this is because I wanted to feel safe physically and emotionally um, while enjoying this music. Holly G, what do you like about country music? What makes you a fan? 
I wish I had a better answer for you. <laughs> but the truth is that I just like, it's one of those things that I latched onto as a kid and it just kind of stuck with me. That's a, that's a great answer. That's yeah. A, I don't think that there's a rhyme or reason, but sometimes you just find your thing and that kind of has always felt like my thing. Yeah. Is there uh, another song you'd like us to go out on? Um, I would say a good song would be My Church by Marin Morris, because I feel like this is all of our church, and my hope is that more space will be created for us to feel safe in it. Holly G. is the uh, founder of the Black Opry. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Can I get a And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Summer's in full swing, a time to get outdoors, to walk and play. But for many Canadians, it's not as easy as it's been in the past. Great stretches of Canada have been affected by this summer's record-breaking fire season, and there have been more days with more extreme heat. Sheena Rossiter has this report from Edmonton. Send me the love, guys. A crowd of revelers gather around street performers in Edmonton's downtown Churchill Square. Many people have flocked to the Edmonton International Street Performers Festival for a day out with friends and family. Some 50 artists from nine countries performed 500 shows over the 10-day festival. In recent years at festivals like this one, there are always concerns that wildfire smoke will choke out performances. Here's Liz Hobbs, the Director of Programming and Communications at the Edmonton International Street Performers Festival. Most of our performers are kind of high-level athletic acrobats who can't really be doing what they do when you can't breathe outside. So, yeah, at a certain point, we would definitely have to scale back, if not cancel completely, depending on how terrible it is. With over 100 active wildfires still burning in the province of Alberta, during its final days, smoke blanketed the city and made for extremely poor air quality, putting a damper on the festival. But as Liz Hobbs says, it's not just smoke. Extreme heat is something the festival needs to take into consideration for future years, too. With it getting hotter and hotter and hotter, we started conversations with the city about looking at some things that Australia does, for example, where they have massive outdoor tarps that they cover festival sites with and things like that. We haven't quite hit that point yet, but it's definitely something that we're thinking about in the future five, ten years from now. There we go, you guys! Kate Flaherty goes by Kate Great. She's an international street performer, something she's been doing for 17 years. As a performer, battling the elements is hard on her health, but it puts a dent in her pocket too. It's really rough when it gets hot, but at a certain point, like you're outdoors, you're doing physical activity, you really have to watch your body, make sure that you're not gonna pass out, or even worse is the audience can't take the heat. And since we make all of our money from the donations of the audience, if the audience can't stand still long enough to watch your show, then you don't make as much money. So the big heat waves that we've been having have been affecting the entire outdoor performance industry. And this heat is expected to last for the rest of the summer across the country. We're breaking more old warm records than we do cold records by a long shot. That's David Phillips, a senior climatologist for Environment and Climate Change Canada. 
He says Canada set a record for the number of records that were broken for high temperatures across the country. And these smoky, hot summers are the new normal. These warm temperatures, these fires, they're not going to go away. I think this is just a dress rehearsal or a dry run of what summers in the future will be like in Canada. For NPR News, I'm Sheena Rossiter in Edmonton. And this is NPR News. I'm Susan Levy. On Cape Cod, the body of a 17-year-old girl was discovered after the boat she was in crashed into a jetty. It was off Cold Storage Beach in Dennis. Reports indicate other passengers may have been injured in that crash. Orange Line trains are back up and running after a woman's leg became stuck between a train and the platform shortly before 5 o'clock yesterday. She was seen sitting with her leg stuck from above the knee at State Street Station. She was transferred to the hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. Powerful storms dumped rain on the greater Boston area last night. The National Weather Service says communities between Worcester and Boston and points north got one to two inches of rain. Thunderstorms caused flooding in communities including Lowell, Bill Ricca, and Worcester. Lightning strikes also hit a tree in Wellesley and a home in Haverhill causing fires. The storms also caused last night's Red Sox game to be suspended mid-game until 210 this afternoon. The game that was scheduled for 410 today has been moved to 710 tonight. 69 degrees at 940. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. It's been more than five months since a Norfolk Southern train derailed and devastated East Palestine, Ohio. And now the CEO claims his company is on track to be the safest in the industry. You know, rail is the safest, most efficient, and most sustainable form of transporting goods across land. And we can do better. Norfolk Southern on the push for better rail safety. That's on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at LodestarFoundation.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. It's been more than two decades since Western forces intervened in Kosovo to try to stop Serbian forces from slaughtering ethnic Albanians there. As NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports, Kosovo remains a Balkan flashpoint, and you will hear that couple of minutes into this report. 
When Yugoslavia began to splinter in the early 90s, Kosovo was a province of Serbia with a majority ethnic Albanian population. So after the Declaration of Independence in 2008, Kosovo became an Albanian-majority country. Political analyst Igor Markovic says that means in Kosovo today, Serbs make up only around 4% of the population. So basically the places have switched. Serbia firmly rejects Kosovo's independence, which means the governments of Kosovo and Serbia have diametrically opposed visions of Kosovo's future. Surjan Simonovic is a lawyer for NGO The Human Center in northern Kosovo, where most ethnic Serbs live. He says Kosovo Serbs feel like pawns in a game between Belgrade and Pristina. Should they belong to Kosovo or should they belong to Serbia? At the end, they're deceived from both sides. I mean, Pristina is not transparent enough. Belgrade is not transparent at all. So losers are ordinary people. Kosovo Serbs are politically controlled by Belgrade, says Simonovic. And because of disagreements with Pristina, Serbian Prime Minister Aleksandar Vucic instructed them to boycott Kosovo's recent municipal elections. That's how four ethnic Albanians got elected mayor in ethnic Serb-majority towns in northern Kosovo at the end of May. Ismir Zeciri is one of them. He remembers trying to enter the town hall in Zubin Potok to begin his term. Of course, I was surprised when I arrived and about 50 people were blocking the entrance. All the while, more and more people were coming out as they sounded the city alarm. Hundreds of Serbs gathered, demanding the newly elected mayor's leave. Civilians and scores of NATO soldiers, which are still in Kosovo two decades later to help keep the peace, were injured in clashes. It was the worst violence in nearly 20 years. Ivana Stradner is a Balkans expert with the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. She says part of the problem stems from Serbian Prime Minister Vucic, who is in trouble at home. So in order to remain in power, he always needs to escalate the crisis in Kosovo and then to position himself in the center and as someone who, who can solve the problems. Kosovo's Prime Minister Albin Kurti has also been fanning the flames of nationalism. Last week, there was a brawl in Kosovo's parliament. Kurti got a glass of water thrown in his face. His critics say he strained relations with Kosovo's main backers, the U.S. and E.U. Kurti blames Kosovo's problems on what he calls the lawlessness in northern Kosovo. He spoke to NPR. The key problem we have is these violent extremists and criminal gangs uh, financially supported and uh, politically ordered from Belgrade to destabilize Kosovo. The U.S. has poured more than $2 billion into Kosovo over the last two decades and built a massive new embassy in Pristina. But the Biden administration has taken an unusually hard line with Kurti. Stradner says that's because America fears two things, renewed conflict and Serbian Prime Minister Vucic and his close ties with Russia. They are really afraid of escalating. They are very afraid of Vucic going towards pivoting to Russia. And they will do anything possible just to appease him. Stradner says many naively believe Vucic is moving toward the West, 
but she says Serbia is a historic ally of Russia and Vucic will continue to play both sides. Two months after the violence, Serb citizens are still gathering in front of the town hall of Svechan in northern Kosovo, this time a peaceful around-the-clock sit-in until the ethnic Albanian mayor resigns. Not far from where they're gathered, there are Zs scrawled on a wall in support of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Stradner says Russia would love to see chaos erupt in the Balkans. For several reasons. To humiliate the United States, to show that NATO is nothing more than a paper tiger, and of course, to distract the West from the war in Ukraine. Kurti has said he will allow new mayoral elections and most Kosovo Serbs say they will participate if Belgrade gives the green light. But Stradner is pessimistic. She says the Balkans are once again a tenderbox as nationalism flares in both Serbia and Kosovo. Eleanor Beersley, NPR News, Kosovo. Vermeer's The Concert, painted in 1664, shows a young woman at a harpsichord, a man playing a lute, and a woman singing. It may be the most valuable stolen object in the world. It was cut from its frame in the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in 1990 and stolen, along with 12 other works. There have been boasts about the whereabouts of the painting and leads over the years, and they've led nowhere. But when a South African shipping tycoon murdered in Amalfi turns out to have a secret vault holding an empty frame that matches the dimensions of the Purloin masterpiece, who you gonna call? The Italian art police call Gabriel Alon, noted art conservator, artist, former Israeli intelligence official, and hero of more than a score of best-selling novels by Daniel Silva. The Collector is his latest, and Daniel Silva joins us from New York. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. What a wonderful introduction. I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> well, that's why we're here. So Gabriel is living the good life. He's coiffing Sancerre. He's hopscotching with his love between Venice, Paris, and other glamorous locations. Why would he let himself be enlisted in this case? Because like the person who created him, he gets annoyed about art theft, especially something like the concert. I mean, it is one of 34 works by Johannes Vermeer. It is an extraordinary crime against art. I'm still angry about it, and so is Gabriel. And he reluctantly takes the case, and as is often the case, it leads to an unexpected place. Some of your characters at one point review a list of possibles, people, groups, or interests who may have wanted to take the Vermeer or wound up with it. How many of that is valid, according to your research? Because, as I don't have to tell you, some investigators think the works just might still be somewhere near Boston. The FBI is fairly certain about the identity of the two men who dressed as Boston police officers in genuine Boston PD uniforms, by the way, and carried off the initial theft. The FBI is quite certain that they're both dead. The FBI believes that the paintings migrated to Connecticut, then headed down to the Philadelphia area. And in about 2007, they were put on the illicit market in the Philadelphia area. Even loving your book, I still don't understand. Why would somebody traffic in stolen art when can't show it to friends or the world? They can't lend it to, you know, to galleries or museums for tax write-offs and to get their names on plaques and they could be jailed. That is a debate within the art world. There is no doubt in my mind that there is a illicit black market for stolen art, antiquities, and 
objet d'art that are of, of, of great value. But when it comes to masterpieces like this, professional criminals are quite good at stealing the paintings, but they're lousy about trying to, to monetize their investment. The paintings end up sort of being used as underworld cash, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. um, you know, criminal traveler's checks, collateral and down payments in other criminal transactions. And that's something that, else that I explore in the novel, which makes it even more annoying. They took these paintings and now they're just being swapped around perhaps and used in other ways. Yeah. Tell us about your uh, new character you introduced here, Ingrid Johansson. Readers of my series know that I turn crooks and assassins and, and other people who are not necessarily the finest examples of our society, sort of turn them into protagonists. You know, Gabriel is a restorer, and he restores not only paintings, but people as well. Um, Ingrid is a brilliant computer hacker. She has a little bit of touch of kleptomania, and she is an extraordinarily good con artist and thief. She accepts a $10 million payday to steal the Vermeer from a palazzo in Amalfi, not realizing that she's in way over her head and there's a much broader conspiracy, and ends up working with Gabriel to find the painting that she stole. You have written 23 novels with Gabriel Elon. How much space does he take up in your mind? <laughs> As I explain to my wife all the time when I'm preoccupied or not listening to what she's trying to say to me, I spend more time in his world than I do in this world. You know, the cover of the book is sort of the view from his terrace of his apartment on the Grand Canal in Venice. He seems very, very real to me, as do all of the sub-characters in, in the series. I think of them as though they're real people. I imagine that they are out there living their lives in this parallel universe that I've created. And I like to just drop into it every now and again with a legal pad in my hand and a pencil and just sort of listen in. Without revealing too much, the uh, story involves a trail that leads to Russia and great possible risk to the world. Does that risk reflect your own concerns about what's happening now? The book is set last autumn. And if you recall, there was that period where the United States became alarmed by what it was hearing and seeing uh, the Russians doing there, that they were speaking very casually about using nuclear weapons, that they seemed to be hunting around for a pretext. There was evidence that they might be preparing some sort of false flag, dirty bomb attack using radioactive material. And we were so alarmed, uh, in fact, that President Biden took the extraordinary step of publicly warning Vladimir Putin, do not use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. It will have catastrophic results for you and your country. Um, I think that the threat of a nuclear attack of some sort by the Russians has probably receded. But I think what's more likely is some sort of nuclear-ish incident. You know, the Russians have this doctrine that they refer to as escalate in order to de-escalate, that they might ramp up and create some sort of crisis that would allow them to then de-escalate as a means of ending this war in a way that preserves some dignity for Putin and, and the Russian military. Wow. Daniel Zilva's latest novel, The Collector. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. What a treat. I so enjoyed it.
You've probably heard many stories from musicians over the years about writing songs about the pandemic. But Tiny Desk contest entrant Nicole Horbath put a kind of bossa nova twist on what are usually more melancholy anthems for the COVID years. NPR's Ryan Bank has this profile. Directly translated, the Spanish word florecer means to flourish. As the title of Nicole Horbath's new single, its more accurate meaning is to bloom. The Miami-based musician started writing the song when it felt like the world she knew was wilting. So I was in a moment where I couldn't find myself. Horvath is originally from Barranquilla, Colombia. She was a student at the University of California, Berkeley in March of 2020 when the world seemed to stop. Stuck in her tiny dorm room on campus, like most international students with no family in the States, she resisted the urge to just sit there, her nose pressed up against her window, dreaming of the outside world. Instead, Horvath looked inward and found a different feeling. That feeling of, if I really need to, to water myself with good things, even though what is outside is overwhelming, I need to water myself and take care of the inside so better things can bloom. Her song, Florecet, spans two continents, melody and chords written in California, lyrics scrawled out on a bus from Bogota to Barranquilla, Colombia. The result is a breezy pick-me-up, perfect for easy summer listening. Not at all something you'd expect to come from such trauma. Nicole Horbath says she didn't want to write something that would be a reminder of that very outward sadness. No, she says at that time, what the world really needed was a reminder that happiness can start on the inside. I was super sad all the time and I felt really lonely, but I decided to transform those feelings into something positive. But I said it's kind of a, of a letter to myself as well. I think a lot of the songs that I write kind of come from a place where I am like a third person um, talking to myself and, and saying, everything's going to be okay. Three years later, Harboth says she's been able to build a family of brilliant friends, many of whom are musicians, in Miami. I don't feel alone anymore. It's a natural place for her music, and she says her song Florecer is inspiring people in all kinds of ways, unrelated to COVID or the pandemic blues. One of my best friends sent me a message where she was saying, like, I just wanted to let you know that I had a very important interview for my career. And what kind of calmed me down and made me feel confident was your song, Florida Set. You can see Nicole Horbath's Tiny Desk Contest submission on her YouTube channel. Ryan Bank, NPR News. Support for NPR and the Tiny Desk Contest comes from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One is proud to support NPR Music and the Tiny Desk Contest. Capital One, what's in your wallet? And from Guayaki, maker of Yerba Mate, who believe community comes to life and connections are made through music. Guayaki, come to life.
And this is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Indeed. Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy. Next at 10, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. 69 degrees at 9.59, becoming sunny today, mid-80s. Partly cloudy tonight, 60s, and sunshine tomorrow, 80s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Zoo, what makes you happy? Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. And Good News Garage, over 5,500 donated cars given to New Englanders in need since 1996. Tax deductions and free towing, goodnewsgarage.org. On last week's Wait, Wait, Emmy Blotnick revealed herself to be a genius of marketing. I've always said that should be the slogan for cottage cheese. Yes. It looks expired when it isn't. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagel. The slogan for our show is it looks like NPR, but it isn't. See what we mean when you join us for this week's Wait, Wait from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.